Hello and welcome to this episode of The Abundant Edge. This is the podcast all about the worlds of permaculture, natural building, and regenerative living. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher, and I have a fantastic interview for you today, so let's jump right on in. My guest today has been one of my most inspiring forces in creating this podcast and working towards sharing my learning experiences with the larger community. His name is Diego Footer, and he's the founder of Permaculture Voices. Through his business, he puts out a world-class podcast and YouTube channel by the same name, and also sells books and online courses through the website. His broadcasts focus on his own journey in creating a permaculture landscape and garden on his property outside of San Diego, California, and wisdom that he gains through the process. In our interview, Diego opens up about some of his early failures that he had when he first started his business, what he learned from the experience, and some valuable advice for entrepreneurs following the same path. He also shed light on some of the overlooked realities of developing businesses and permaculture landscapes that are often the reasons why people quit early. So grab your notebook for this one because there is enough information in our chat to fill a book. Now I'll turn things over to Diego. Diego, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate you giving me the chance to talk to your audience. Hey, it's my pleasure. I've been following your podcast for quite a while and you've been one of the inspirations for why I do this as well. It's good to hear. It's cool to see because I've said this on my show before, not a lot of people actually go through and start their own podcast. I hear a lot of people want to do it or talk about doing it and very few actually follow through and do it. So good on you for actually doing it. Well, thank you. And on that note, let's jump right in. I've got a ton of questions I want to ask you and my listeners, uh, I'm sure, are big fans of what you do as well. So let's get started. So if you could tell me a little bit about yourself and your background first, how did you first get into permaculture? Backed into it through health. A client from the business I was working at back in 2007 sent me a book that really inspired him. It was a book called Anti-Cancer, talking about a man and his wife going through cancer. That book really shocked me uh, in terms of the food I was eating. I kind of described the food I was eating at the time as the men's health level of nutrition, you know, supplements, that type of thing. So reading that book, it was a big realization. Food has a link to cancer. That sent me down a rabbit hole of watching all these videos out there, everything from the food inks through forks over knives. And then I got started getting into eating your healthy. And usually when you go down that route, you start looking at growing your own food. That took me into things like soil remineralization. And in looking through those videos at the time, I stumbled upon some of the old Bill Mollison videos or Jeff Lawton videos on YouTube and Sepp Holzer's work that got me sucked into permaculture, started gardening from there. And it's been an ongoing journey uh, from 2007 ever since. Fantastic. I think a lot of people who listen to these resources would find a, a really similar path that they got into as well. Health and um, the sources of food that we consume are a big reason why people find their way into permaculture and other regenerative lifestyle skills. I think so. It's the, it's the commonality and it's the most personal thing. When you see people sick and if you make that connection between that could happen to me and if, look at the food I'm eating, could the food lead to potential illness down the line? Could I eat better food and change my life now in terms of the way I feel, have more energy, just be healthier. Then you start to look at the egg system and how that food is produced and you start to think, well, is there a better way? 
Exactly. And it hits home really fast, especially, you know, for people who are taking care of families or who have had uh, like a history of, you know, you saying, saying that uh, cancer and wanting to avoid that was one of your motivations. I think a lot of people can relate to that. Now, what point in your permaculture journey did you decide that this is what you want to dedicate your time and your efforts to? It's a tough question to answer. I'm somebody who lets myself get pulled along with personal interests. I, I'm somebody who finds something new, and if I really gravitate towards it, I really gravitate towards it and start to go all in on it, read about it, watch as much as I can, start practicing as much as I can. Along the way, though, that that's a hobby. And where it shifted over to a business for me, I guess, is that what you're asking in terms of, you know, how I was going to go down that route? Well, certainly that's a big decision, too. And I have some other questions about taking those plunges into actually supporting yourself and doing the business. But what part of the concepts of permaculture? I mean, I know you mentioned the health motivation, but were there other parts that really kind of sealed the deal for you and, and made you focus your efforts into making a transition towards sort of permaculture and regenerative based efforts. You know, it's probably not what the permaculture teachers would want to hear, but there was really the coolness of it, the the inspiration that came out of permaculture, the earlier videos that were out there, there wasn't as much out there, nearly as much out there as there is today, you know, going back 10 years. So it was seeing the work that people like Jeff Lawton were doing with the greening the desert, that inspired me. You know, that made me think, wow, look what you could do. You could take this burned out patch of land and turn it into something lush. And even though I didn't have that to work with at the time, because I was still renting where I was living, it made me, it inspired me. I am somebody I think who likes to chase challenges too. And I like the idea of taking something that somebody wouldn't think would be possible and converting it into something that was possible. So seeing all the work that the first generation of permaculture people had put out there was really what got me motivated. And then the more I learned about it, the more it it made sense in terms of a design system. Things that like stacking functions and greatest effect for least amount of change, those types of principles really resonated with me. I, you know, I'm an engineer is my background. So those principles a lot overlapped with what you do in engineering. And I think they just made sense. But initially the thing that, that got me hooked and really got me into it was seeing what the big people were doing that was inspiring and then going out and doing it because it's one of the things you can do and start to see an impact on and participate in you know really right away anybody can go out and start planting trees and doing work on the land where other hobbies and other things require you know investment or longer time frames to play out yeah absolutely and i think you and i have a lot of commonalities my background is in engineering as well and that video about regreening the desert from Jeff Lawton was also one of the huge drivers that got me to focus in and do so much more research and uh, sort of devote the direction of my own business in in that way. Yeah, I think that's a big video that's got most people into this sector. It's just so inspiring when you see the before and after and it's real. You can't deny it. I think, exactly. I think it challenges people's paradigms. You know, they think desert is one thing and, you know, the general approach, I think, to desertification is it's getting worse. We just have to go along with it and here's somebody showing 
well, no, you can stop, do the work and design your way out of this slowly, but by utilizing all these natural patterns and a design system, you can reverse the effects of desertification, even on a small scale, and then hopefully down generations, you know, do it on a much larger scale. Absolutely. And there are so many other types of landscapes that you can regenerate. But of course, the desert all of a sudden into a forest makes for really great before and after pictures. Now, you were saying that um, those were some of the, the motivations that really made this click, made this make sense to you. And now since then, how has your life changed? And what have been some of the accomplishments that you're most proud of? You know, I, I think I've came a long way in terms of permaculture and maybe full circle. I started out with that irrational exuberance a bit of an ignorance around it, seeing that work and just being inspired by it, but not truly understanding what went into it. And along the way in that permaculture journey, you know, as I learned more, I felt like there was a lot of claims being made in permaculture that were very much unsubstantiated. And I thought that devalued some of the work that had already been done and some of the design system itself and then I've kind of now gotten to the point where I've let go of that and said, just let the design system do what it has or do what it can, utilize it for what it is. It's a tool. If some people want to claim it does one thing, so what? That doesn't matter. So I now look at work that's done on the landscape that's been successful in a totally different way. I'm in awe. I still think, wow, that's awesome when I see those types of landscapes but having done a lot of work on a personal level, I understand the massive amount of time, planning, work, effort, water, and money that goes into creating those changes. It's you know like watching one of those home makeover shows on TV. If you just watch the beginning for first five minutes and the last five minutes, you see a tremendous turnaround. But there's days in between there and tons of people throwing an effort at the change that comes at the beginning of the show to the end of the show. And that's no different than landscapes. And initially I looked at these landscapes and thought, wow, I knew work went in, but I didn't understand how much. And part of that appreciation of the work that goes in, and this is probably what I'm most proud of, is going out there myself and doing projects that on the surface I probably wouldn't have thought I can do and putting the time and work in to get those projects done, whether that's on a very small scale, turning around the landscape on the property that I own, moving big piles of, of soil around, mulching areas, filling up garden beds, all things that take a massive amount of time. I, you know, I've spent thousands of hours doing that since I've had my property. And it's something that's just been chipped away at, but I think when the common person the average person just walks by a property, they never notice those changes. And for me, that work has been what's been most fulfilling. It's, it's doing the work, doing the accomplishments. So I'm most proud of that. And then by doing that work and seeing the amount of work it takes to make those changes happen, that's what's caused me to come full circle when I see these designs where it's now just, that's awesome. But man, they did a lot of work and a lot of people and a lot of time went into these changes. And, you know, also thinking going forward, how are we going to change 
a lot of these landscapes now that are getting worse or how are we going to change farms around and knowing this time effect i am very slow to say oh just apply permaculture that'll fix that'll fix it that'll solve the problems that we have and while that's true on some level it's going to take a long time and there's a long curve to go from start to finish. And that's only going to come through the dedication of a lot of hard work for a lot of people to make those changes. So that's really how I've come full circle in this all. And it's been through the work that I've done that I'm most proud of, which is just the long, slow grind of getting projects done and not seeking out the instant gratification of it all. I'm really glad you brought that up because it's one of the things that doesn't get talked about that much, either in permaculture or in natural building. All that unglamorous work that doesn't make it to the highlight reel, to the after photos and um, the ways that you can show off the finished product. But really, if you're not invested and if you don't have sort of the stamina to go through that aspect of it, you're never going to arrive at your goals. So I'm really glad you brought that up. I'll tell you a story in relation to natural building that further emphasizes this point. I've been involved in one natural building project ever. It's just not an area that I don't know anybody really doing it. So one person I do know doing it, I got involved with a project they were doing just for one day, maybe three years ago. And I went, you know, an hour and a half across San Diego to this project out in the middle of the desert. And they were building a, it's probably not the right terminology, but like a straw bale kitchen. So they had mm -hmm. framed out this room. I'll say it wasn't huge. It was maybe 15 by 15, maybe 20 by 20, just a square with, let's say, a concrete floor on it. And they had framed it out with wood, and they were putting straw bales in between the framing. And then they would dunk the straw bales in, in like a clay slip, for lack of a better word. Probably not the right terminology. And you would then take the cob or the clay on the outside of this building and you know I would just push it on and the people that were experienced with this were like, no, you gotta use your fingers and push the clay into the straw bale. And I'm looking at this building thinking, okay, it's a 20 by 20 foot building, it's 10 feet high, there's some massive amount of straw bales in here, 100. And you're looking to take, you know, three hours per straw bale to pound all this clay in. And I remember just working and working. And it was like there was 30 people there working on this building. And it wasn't like the building was done in a day. The building was going to take weeks to finish given the way that they were approaching it. So I had a new appreciation for, well, if this is really the right way, there's a lot of work involved here where I think people initially, just like you're saying, they see the finished product, they want the finished product, and they don't understand how much finger action goes into that finished product. Absolutely. That's been one of my biggest uphill battles when speaking with clients who get really excited about these projects and the fact that in a lot of cases, especially where I am in Guatemala, uh, the projects can be done for a very small budget, but they sort of want all of the different aspects at the same time. They want it to be done quickly. They want it to be done cheap and they want it to be done at a high quality. And, you know, sort of stopping and explaining the process is often the part that, you know, is the least popular. So, yeah, I, I always appreciate when people bring some attention to the fact that these processes 
if done correctly, are really an investment in time, labor, and often education, making sure that you do it right the first time. Well, that's it. And, you know, we're in a society that wants it all now. If I can't just go pick it up at Home Depot or have Amazon Prime deliver it, well, then I'm not satisfied. Where if you take the time that goes into building one of these straw bale structures appropriately initially and then extrapolate that over the life of that structure, you know, it's a finite amount of time, but it seems like a ton in the beginning when you just want the building and the building is taking forever to get built. But people just, they don't think that way in today's time. You know, they're thinking, I want the building now, not, I don't care if I'm going to have it 50 or 60 or 100 years from now. That's not what's important to me. I need it tomorrow. Yeah, exactly. Now, I know that you personally took on the challenge of building a permaculture-based business at a time when most people would be looking for security and stability. And on top of that, you say you had a major business failure too. Tell me the story of how that all happened. What was going through your mind at the time and how did you bounce back from that setback? Yeah, the, the business probably follows along the line of that irrational exuberance and ignorance that I had when I first got into permaculture because I think I looked at the permaculture space and I wanted a permaculture based business or I wanted a business really. I didn't have to be permaculture based. So I think I imposed a business upon the permaculture space without really doing as much planning, stress testing, due diligence as I should have when I launched that business. Now, which business was that? This is the conference. So when okay. I did the, the first conference back in 2013, the initial thought was there's an opportunity here. That was it. I didn't necessarily want to run a conference. I didn't necessarily think it was the best business. You know, I did a nuts and bolts level. I just kind of dove into it thinking there's a really good opportunity here. I think I can make it work. I can make some money. I like doing this. I'm interested in this space. If it works, great. There's a future here. So I did that, again, out of not enough planning, and I would never approach it that way ever again. And I've since now questioned, like when I hear permaculture business, I've asked this on my podcast, you know, like, what is that? I'm not quite sure what a permaculture business is. So a lot of people, I think they say, you know, oh, is your business involved in permaculture? It kind of is, but really I was a conference business that focused on permaculture. So I didn't really have a permaculture business. So I'm, I'm reluctant to say that similarly, like I, I wouldn't call anything like natural building or a composting business or a farm a permaculture business, but it's easy to kind of extend that umbrella over them. So sure, I, I understand. So I did that event and because, you know, really I, if we, if we go with the, I was looking for a permaculture business theme and I guess in some ways I kind of was looking for a business within this space. You know, the real businesses that would people would start within, within permaculture, and really still today this is no different, are they're going to teach, they're going to do design work, or they're going to do some sort of eco-service like installing garden beds, installing landscaping, composting. Like those were the things. And I didn't want to do that. I wanted something I could do from home and I wanted something I could do on the side. So fast forward ahead three iterations of that event, and in hindsight, all that 
non-planning, all that not as thorough planning that I needed to do at the beginning turned out to be to come to light. Finally, and it all floated through and it realized it just wasn't a business that worked and where it really hit me the hardest was after the second conference where you know, I took a, a big loss after that. So that's the danger of, of following a passion, following, you know, forcing something, not doing the research is you end up with something that doesn't work. And that's what I had. I had something that didn't work at all. And the recovery from that has been slow. It's still there. Um, but I'll say that even though that business failed, it failed financially. And if we look at the eight forms of capital that Gregory Landaway and Ethan Rowland came up with, financial capital is one of the eight forms. There's other forms like spiritual, experiential, social capital. And I benefited in all those other ways over the last over the three years of doing that event. So I, I try and compartmentalize how did that event fail. It failed from a, as a business. It failed financially. But I built a lot of social capital over that time. I gained a lot of experience, real-world, hard-knocks, MBA experience over that time. And it's through that failure of that business that I still go today. Like I, I'm using the wreckage of that business to forage a way ahead, to build something to get me forward. And I'm not sure I could would be here today or doing what I'm doing today or have the opportunity that I have today if I didn't have that disaster that was a business. Now, maybe it could have all worked out. And that's actually an interesting thought. Like say that whole business had worked out and it all turned out to be great that could have been a blessing or a curse in disguise, not a blessing in disguise, a curse in disguise, because I really don't know that I had thought or knew enough to handle the success of it or plan. Where now, having gone through the disaster, going forward, I know how to approach things differently. I know how to navigate things differently. So I think people within this space, that the thought is, I want to start a business within this space and they impose that. And I go to this Larry Santoyoism. If you don't impose the solution, you arrive at the solution. So if you're forcing a business into this space, which is exactly what I did and what I think a lot of people do, I think that's the wrong approach. If you want to start a business, I would say, look for the best business that there is to start for you in your context, in your market. Maybe that's not within this space. Maybe this space is better treated as a hobby. Maybe this space is better treated as a pastime. Or maybe this space is good for a business, but it's going to take you time to find, to arrive at that right business for the space versus sitting down tomorrow and saying, I want to be an entrepreneur. I like permaculture. What type of permaculture business can I start? That's a bad approach, in my opinion. Might work for some people. I don't know that it's going to work for everybody. So that's that's how I ran through the ringer of it all, you know, starting not knowing what I was doing, forcing a solution, going through hell, learning from that failing forward, 
and then taking all those failures, quote, and building off of them based on those learnings in a way that I think is going to be much more resilient in the long run. So what advice, based on what you've learned from that failure, would you give to people who want to step up and create permaculture-based businesses for themselves? Now, I'll reiterate because you know we haven't decided on what a permaculture-based business is. Myself, I would, I would call that something, uh, some sort of enterprise or business that uses permaculture principles as sort of an operator's manual and not necessarily just planting gardens or food forests or what have you? Well, I would say first, put the operator manual on the back burner. Like get a business that works first, then start layering on the operator manual, the permaculture principles, the design principles. I think this is a big mistake a lot of people make. Like you need a business that survives in reality, in in the world now. First and foremost, you need a cash flow generating business. Now you can think, here's where I want to go long term. Here's how I want the business to design to look long term. Here's how I can involve these principles long term. But and maybe you can use them in the near term at the beginning, but don't become beholden upon those. If you do, sometimes those principles, I think, will stop you from making moves that you need to make to allow the business to succeed today. And I always tell people this, and I've learned this from experience, and I've seen enough examples of this now to know, like, it doesn't matter where you want the business to be in 20 years if you don't make it to year 20. If you don't make it out of year one, your 20-year plan doesn't matter. So if you want the best, most regenerative, most permaculture-based business in 2030, the most important thing you need is to make it to 2018 in business and then 2019 and so on. And that means this is a continuum, it's a pathway. And this has been really something I've learned from experience and I've heard it from people that like live and die with this. Ethan Rowland, Gregory Landaway, they run Terragenesis International. They work with companies like Lush Cosmetics. And they have to explain this to them. This is a continuum. You're constantly working towards a more regenerative model. You're not going to get there in one step. This is the error I think a lot of people make. So my advice would be, one, realize that ideology may have to be sacrificed day one. In fact, it probably will be. Two, find a business that works in today's space, meaning do you, can you solve a problem with it? Are, is there a big enough customer base? How are you going to reach those customers? And are they willing to pay to have this problem solved? Then I would look at what is your level of interest in this business? This is something I've thought a lot about. If you're super passionate about it, it may not be the best business to start. You know, you have to follow your passion, follow your bliss to some extent. 
But there's a danger in that because sometimes following your bliss blinds you to the reality that you should be paying attention to. You may love natural building, but people may say, nobody's going to pay for natural building in San Diego. So you're pushing a string. It's just not going to work. Where maybe your better bet is to start by building repurposed bungalows in people's backyards that you know, look like barn wood and that type of thing, and then slowly integrate natural building elements into that, or tiny houses or something like that on trailers, because that's where the demand is. And then you slowly start to offer other services. And your passion comes in here because you don't want to mix up the opportunity with the passion. I fell in love, I think, you know, with the permaculture, I imposed it. I thought there was an opportunity, but I think really that was my passion saying there was an opportunity. And then think about, do you want to spend 40 hours or more realistically like 60 hours a week on this thing that you're passionate about? A lot of people may love gardening or whatever that thing is, but when you do it for a career, suddenly your views change. Do you want to do it every day, year round for five years? You may hate that thing at the end of the day where you still love it, spending an hour or two a night on it or some time on the weekends doing it. So you got to think about how much do you like doing this? And are you going to love doing this all the time? All parts of it, like the crappy parts to the best parts, because even your dream job is going to suck a lot of the time. So, you know, you, again, natural building, I'll go back to that and not something I know a lot about, but like the, the fun part of natural building might be like putting the structure up together, putting the structure together. The hard part of a natural building business is knocking on doors, finding clients, you know, those types of things, probably working out code, legalities, you know, all that boring stuff, the fun parts, the building, do you want to do everything else that goes with it? And then I would say, don't let passion be necessarily the driver. Like, I think this would suss out with most people, a business that works and meaning it makes money. If you don't love it, that's better than a business that you love that doesn't make money. Like you can only not make money doing something you love as a business for so long before you hate that thing and you shut down the business. A business that makes money, at least it makes money. You're not stressed about that. And you can learn to love it and slowly swing it to what you love or focus on the parts of that business that you do love and use the money that it's making to hire people or outsource the parts that you don't love. So I think that's the thing. Find something that works first then apply your ideology, then look at the passion equation. I mean, those are the approaches I would take to it. And I don't think those are the intuitive approaches that anybody takes to it, or at least most people. But sometimes agree, that's okay. Sure. And I really re resonate with that, especially since I've been working over the past three years to develop my own business. And I've gone through a couple of those stages that you've mentioned, being overly focused on the passion portion. Um, realizing how many other hats you have to wear when you're the sole proprietor in the beginning and you know that steep learning curve of doing marketing doing accounting and all the other sort of managerial tasks that a lot of people don't think about when they get into something that they're passionate about um, 
or yeah, sounds really fun at the get-go. There's so many other steps behind it, much like we were talking about at the beginning. Exactly. I mean, look at what we're doing today here. We're, we're talking on a podcast. You do a podcast, I do a podcast. A lot of people think I want to do a podcast, and they don't. And I think here's one reason why. Because the fun part is what we're doing now. It's the talking part. The part that isn't so fun, at least for me, after doing thousands of these, is the editing. Like, I hate editing these things. I'm sick of looking at Audacity. I'm sick of editing audio. I've done it for four years, almost every single day for four years. I just don't want to do it anymore. But it's like, what am I going to do? I can outsource it, but that doesn't necessarily work as easy as it sounds. And I'm going to have to pay somebody to do it. So if I want to do the podcast and get the the gain out of it, if I want to do the fun part, then I have to bite my tongue and do the negative part. And really the negative part is a greater slice of the pie, the time pie, than the fun part. It's like sometimes you're just going to have to take the bad if you want the good. And most people don't know that going in. And they might not, they might say, oh, I'll do it. Yeah, I'll do it. And it's fine for a month or two months or three months, but nine months or two years into it, are you still wanting to eat that bad every day just to keep the good going? Absolutely. Now, I wanted to revisit another thing that you talked about earlier, how there are multiple forms of capital that you can get from a business venture and how money is just one of those. Now, you've had the privilege of interviewing and learning directly from some of the biggest names and innovators in the world of permaculture. So what have been some of the most important takeaways and lessons that you've learned from these people and maybe some other benefits that you've gotten, even though the business didn't pan out the way you wanted? Okay, I'll do take I'll do takeaways first. And then if I forget to get to the second part, just prompt me on that. Yeah, no worries. So the big takeaways, I mean, just two of the ones I highlighted earlier would be this is a continuum we're on. It's a process. And that comes from Ethan Rowland and Gregory Landaway. They they both echo that. And that is applicable to anything, landscapes, businesses, life. If you want to lose weight, if you want to get stronger, if you want to run faster, it's not going to happen tomorrow. It's going to be incremental changes, small, tiny incremental changes over a very long period of time. So there's one big takeaway. The other idea that came out of somebody else who works for TerraGenesis with Ethan and Gregory, and I go to this every day, move in the direction of the most open doors. That's something Christian Shearer talks about. Give yourself optionality. The best plan is the plan that you can change easiest, that has the most options with it. So I love that as a takeaway. Curtis talks about this all the time, and I reference this when I was talking about businesses, put your ideology in your back pocket. Sometimes you don't need that ideology or you can't have that ideology to get to where you want to go. So you have to put it aside. And that can be very hard for people that are new, people that are passionate to do. The Larry Santoyoism, which I talked about earlier, arrive at the solution, don't impose the solution. Again, applicable to many things in life, relationships, raising kids, businesses. I think somebody like Stefan Subkowiak has shown that you have to be willing to have a long-term vision and put in the time. There were many years, many, many years, like there was like an eight-year period in there where he wanted to hang it up and throw it all away and just give up. But he persevered and got through it and made it through. 
I there's been episodes that I've done on depression and alcoholism, real issues that people deal with. And I think the takeaways from that is everybody is dealing with something. Everybody has some sort of issue. And it's not always the fun stuff we all want to talk about or admit even to ourselves. But there's people who can overcome these issues. So whether that's change on the landscape or change within us and our landscape, differences can be made dramatically. It just comes down to do you want to put the work in? Do you want to believe in it? And can you last it out? And those are probably some of the initial ones that stick out. I mean, there's just been so many. I mean, the, the biggest macro theme of it all is it's never easy. It's always going to be a lot of work, but there are people doing it. Odds are, if you want to do something in this space, there's someone out there successfully doing it and successfully doing it really, really well. What are they doing? Model them. And if it's not working for you, why isn't it working? And how can you emulate them? Are you working as hard as they are? Are you doing the same things? Is something just different? So I've interviewed on the main show, let's say 220 people, probably some overlap in there. And these are people in many cases that didn't start out in this space. They came into it from other careers. They've transitioned in. They followed interests and, and found an opportunity to make it work. And some people are still trying to make it work out of those people that I've talked to. So there's no right answer either. And what was the second part of that question? Oh, and um, what other benefits have you taken in forms other than money from right. the endeavors and the businesses that you've gotten into? So, I, you know, if we think another lesson that came out of all this is the eight forms of capital and really becoming aware of that in many ways. One, what is it, you know, mean learning what it was from the people who created it and also seeing how other people interpret it and apply it. And that's been how I've benefited. I've talked about it, this just recently because I'm four months out of employment, four months into self-employment now, total self-employment. And the work that I do going forward isn't coming out of the ether, isn't necessarily all new work. It's maybe new projects and new businesses, but it's new projects and new businesses that are built on a foundation that was built over the last three and a half or four years. I am, can do things now faster, start further ahead, start at a higher point because of work that I've put in previously. An example of that is like social capital. I've worked with a lot of people in the space. I have good relationships with a lot of people in the space. So if I need advice, if I need somebody to help promote, if I need somebody to give feedback or supply some sort of knowledge content, a lot of times that's just a text message away. And I couldn't have done that at day one. So if I think of the conference, you know, again, going back to that, the negative and all that, the one form of capital negative was finance. I lost money doing it and I didn't get paid for the time that I put in, in dollars. 
But what did I get paid in? Relationships, that's within people within this space, that's learning how to deal with contractors. Over that same time, I learned everything about the web that I'm doing, how to do podcasting, that all came out of this. I've learned how to do bookkeeping for a business. I've learned everything else that comes with entrepreneurialism. I've learned how to kind of manage myself, which is a big part of being an entrepreneur. It's largely a battle of you versus you because there's going to be ups and downs. The ups are great, but the downs are what seems to hang around in our minds. And if you yourself can't handle those downs, you're going to tap out on you. So going through the negatives and seeing how I've gone through them has helped when I get new negatives. I bounce back quicker. I learn to risk assess and balance out those negatives so that so the bottoms aren't as deep anymore. And seeing a business fail has allowed me to do a post-mortem and say, why did it fail? Why did it not work? What could I have done differently? So naturally now, any new business venture I want to start, I look at what didn't work, what went wrong, and say, well, how can I avoid these things? And start stress testing these businesses. Where could they fall apart? What's the biggest risk? What's the amount of downside here? Now learn how to manage money in all of this. Limit your capital risk. In many ways, the, the failure, like I said before, it was good. And I'm not sure, and, and I'm really, I'll have to think a lot about this, but I'm not sure what would have happened if that would have been successful. Because I don't know that I would have learned these lessons and might I have gone lottery winner and taken a gross misstep at some point in the future not having learned these lessons and really stepped into the Grand Canyon and blew it all up. I don't know. I think, and this doesn't mean everybody has to fail, but if you look at successful entrepreneurs or people that are successful in anything in life, there's a lot of failures in their wake, and it's, it's really those failures that have enabled them to move forward. So a takeaway from this, too, is something like Davin Bernakovich would say, fail forward. I look at the things I did in the past, and I try and look at the positives of them. Like, I can't, what am I going to do focusing on how much money I lost on the event or why the business didn't work? All I can do is learn from it. If I obsess on it, if I get pissed on it, if I get sad on it, I get angry on it, that doesn't help me. So I just look at it objectively now and say, didn't work. Well, why didn't it work? What can I learn from it? Let's move forward here and let's take all the wreckage that we have, like we're on Lost, and let's build something out of this and move forward. Yeah, that's a really great positive way of looking at what other people sometimes get down about when you call it failure or when you call it sort of a readjustment or things didn't work out the way you wanted. And I, for one, can say that I am really glad that you took on that business venture, even if it didn't work out the way you had wanted, because I know I have personally benefited a ton from the library of videos and tutorials and things from those conferences that are still available. Yeah, I mean, that's another benefit is like the, the conferences happened. 
So the content was made, the content was captured, the effect was put out there. Now really I'm one of let's say a thousand people that were affected by this business. There was a thousand other people affected in some other way. So the if we remove me from the equation, that's the other thing. I mean, this this whole conversation has been me-centric, but this was an event that 650 people attended the first one, 650 people attended the second one, and like 250 people attended the third one. So those people all benefited in some positive or some negative way from this event. And I hear regularly, and maybe I only hear from the positives, that's that's probably the case, that they're benefiting from those events and those works. So I don't want to be a martyr, and I don't think anybody should, but it's hard for me to overlook that and say that that money was wasted. And I have trouble kind of rationalizing this in my head, but part of me looks at the loss and say it was all worth it because look at the change that was made. Look at what I learned. Now that loss wouldn't be sustainable forever, but I can't, I can't discount that. And I also had the yeah. opportunity to do something that not many people ever have the opportunity to do. And I'm thankful for that. Indeed. Well, I'm very grateful for what you were able to accomplish with the seminars and the conferences as well. So let me just change direction just for a moment here. Uh, moving a little away from business, you've got your own land now and you've been putting your time and your effort into building your own permaculture site. Now you're doing that with a young family and I'm interested to know how that's affected your day-to-day -day life and your interactions with your children and with, with your family? Well, I'll give you an answer that's probably not going to be the answer people expect. Sometimes it's immensely stressful, and I think it hurts our relationships. Because How so? If you have kids, if you ever have kids, or you're around other people that, they don't even have to be kids, that just aren't as educated or skilled up on what you're doing. And it's like if I go back to me on that natural building site, like I'm I'm in their way. I don't really know what I'm doing. They're having to come back and redo the work that I'm doing or fix it, and that's frustrating. That's the same thing I experience when I have my kids involved. So the debate always internally is, do I go out there by myself and just work as fast as I can and get it done, knowing that I'm telling them that they can't come out and there's a, there's a cost to that, or they can't be around me or I just got to get work done, or do I bring them out, have them help, and know for sure that the pace will be one-tenth of what it would be otherwise? And the cost to that is I'm frustrated because it's not work's not getting done. So this is a hard thing to manage for me. So progress now, like when I want to make progress, I try and compartmentalize it and, you know, ask my wife, you know, give me two hours where I can just go out, get the majority of the project done. Then they can come out. And by that point, the majority of the project's done. So if they slow me down at the end, I'm not so worried, 
because a lot of work has been done. It's also been a balance of time to dedicate to the project. So for four months, I've been self-employed working from home, and I've probably done more on the projects at home outside than I have done in the last four years, literally, because I now have the time to work on them. Where I don't know how I would have ever gotten done what I got done in the last four months if I was still working a full-time job and doing a business on the side. Like, it just wouldn't have happened because... You know, we all have the many things in life we're trying to balance. Family, friends, personal interests, spiritual interests, main job, side hustle job, projects we want to do, projects we have to do. All those things call for our attention in a 24-hour day. How do you split it up? You're saying, if you're saying yes to something, you're saying no to something else. And some days, if... My wife's having a hard time or the kids are having a rough day, but I had planned on doing work outside. It's just like there's no work getting done outside. So progress stalls. If I was single and lived alone, I'd probably be working, you know, now that it's light out, 18 hours a day and getting a ton done. But that's not my context. So this has been a very, very hard pill to swallow over the last few years of having kids and having a property at the same time is adjusting to the pace at which things move and being accepting of that pace. It's very hard for me at least to sit idle inside sometimes when it feels like I'm not doing anything and I'm just watching the kids and they're playing, but I can't leave them alone because I have to make sure that they don't kill themselves inside. You know, and I want stuff to be happening outside at the same point. So it's a constant balance. I feel like I'm getting better at it, but there's days still now where I get really frustrated to the point where I get cranky or anxious like I gotta get something done I don't feel like I'm getting any work done but I'm doing what I have to do or the work I'm getting done is is required it's just not necessarily the work maybe I want to get done you know I'm changing diapers or watching kids and that's all fun like it's I want to do it but I can't just do that that's well put I like that perspective because again like we've covered so much in this podcast it's the truth about the unglamorous portions and coming to terms with that and having realistic expectations that is going to give you a good idea of the amount of work and the amount of time that it takes to get these results that so many people want. Right. And, and that realistic expectations thing, that's a key point because this is something I see is a, a number one problem out there. People have unrealistic expectations and they hold themselves to standards as though those expectations were realistic. And they get upset about it and they get angry about it. I see it all the time. Just because you want something to happen in a certain time frame and it doesn't happen in that time frame, if that was never realistic in the first place, but you had that expectation, should you have had it anyway? So that's, I really try and tell people, like have honestly, don't 
BS yourself. Realistic expectations. If you have many things happening in life and you think a project's going to get done in a week, expect it to get done or be glad if it gets done in two weeks. Be glad if it gets done. So many people don't even get to that point. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Appreciate your wins because, I I don't know, I've taken on a lot of projects over the last few years, both in natural building and permaculture, and sometimes due to my own failings and sometimes due to circumstances outside of my control, things just don't work out. Things don't get completed or they don't get completed the way that I would have wanted. Um, And so even if it took longer, even if it was a bit more expensive, I've definitely learned to, you know, count those wins and appreciate them when they do show up. Well, that's the other thing, you know, there is like when it gets done, but it doesn't get done how you wanted it to get done. Is that a check in the win box or is that a check in the loss box? Because it got done. And sometimes when you're busy and you're in a whirlwind of life, getting it done is good, but it's not how you wanted. So you're kind of irked about it. And then a lot of times, you know, a few months later, you look back and you don't even notice that it wasn't exactly how you wanted Yeah, and I think if you have the patience and the foresight to see any of those circumstances as a learning experience, I think that's sort of the most that you could hope to get out of it other than, you know, the work that you've put in and the the result. Right. And you're you're dead on when you say, you know, celebrate the wins because I don't think people do that enough. Losses, I always say, will come at you every day all the time. We, We focus on those naturally. If you don't take time to celebrate the wins, big and small, the the losses or the negatives are just going to take over. It's going to make it a much longer journey, and goodness knows it's a long enough journey as it is. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So tell me a little bit about some of the resources that have really helped you out in your own journey, either books or websites or anything else that's been a, an, a valuable asset to you. Probably the way I look at this is just-in-time learning, learning as you need it, when you need it, on the spot. I think the natural approach, and this is the approach we learn in school, is read a bunch of stuff ahead of time and then learn it so then you'll go need it in the future at some point maybe. Well, I approach it just in time. If I need to learn something, I look it up. So the biggest resources that help me with that just-in-time learning, they're going to be the obvious ones. YouTube, podcasts have been huge from an inspirational standpoint and a learning standpoint, audiobooks, uh, the publishing industry in general now around this space, there are so many books out there for things. And also the community. People within this movement, I think, generally want to share information, want to help people. If you are nice about how you ask, if you respect their time about how you ask, you can get a lot from them. That's the one that's most overlooked, I think, are the people. I think people are quick to Google it. People are maybe quick to ask an expert, be that Larry Santoyo or Jeff Lawton, and you realize, well, there's a lot of other people that are doing this on a day-to-day basis in your region. Start by asking them, including like you know some of the old-timers. They're you know, people that really have seen a lot and have a lot of embedded knowledge in them. But I think younger people are reluctant to go seek out knowledge from them. That's a good point. Now, before I let you go here, 
How could our listeners find more about your work, your courses, and the many, many resources that you've published? Yeah, really the catch-all for that today is permaculturevoices.com. There you can access it all. So all the audio that I've ever done on the podcast, it's all right there. It's all available. And it's also wherever you subscribe to a podcast, be it through iTunes or some other service on Android. Search for Permaculture Voices and you'll find me. Punch that into Google, you'll find me. And the podcast is is there and many, many hours of listening if you want to. Excellent. And for anybody listening here, I'll have links to all of that in the show notes as well. So thank you, Diego, so much. You've been so generous with your time. I really appreciate you uh, giving us your insights and your experiences. Yeah, thanks for having me today. I really appreciate it. And thanks for going out there and starting your own and getting this information out there. I really help. I really appreciate you doing it. It means a lot. Thanks, Diego. That's really kind of you to say. I'll catch you soon. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode. As always, you can find all the show notes for this and all other episodes at AbundantEdge.com by clicking on the podcast tab in the navigation bar. On the website, you can also find a whole range of educational articles, as well as the services we offer from contracting, design, consulting, and education. While you're there, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter, where I share updates and pictures on our projects, regenerative living articles, and even free resources and giveaways. Thank you sincerely to all of you who have and continue to add comments and send feedback and emails to me. Your contributions help this to be a conversation and a dialogue that it's meant to be. For anyone else interested, you can email us directly at info at All of your feedback makes these episodes and interviews so much more engaging and help me to give you all the information and content that you want. So thank you so much for listening and I'll see you again on next week's episode. <laughs>